And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Jeremiah. And we're going to be reading the entirety of the book of the chapter of the book of Jeremiah, of the chapter 36 of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 36. We're also going to be studying 37, but I felt that was a little too much to read both chapters in our Bible reading portion of the service. So we're going to read chapter 36 this morning. And I'll be reading, as is my custom out of the New King James Version, God's word declares, Now it came to pass in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, that this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Take a scroll of a book and write on it all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, and against all the nations from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day. It may be, that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I purpose to bring upon them, that every one may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. Then Jeremiah called Baruch, the son of Neriah, and Baruch wrote on a scroll of the book at the instruction of Jeremiah all the words of the Lord which he had spoken to him. And Jeremiah commanded Baruch, saying, I am confined, I cannot go into the house of the Lord. You go, therefore, and read from the scroll which you have written at my instruction, the words of the Lord, in the hearing of the people in the Lord's house on the day of fasting. And you shall also read them in the hearing of all Judah who come from their cities. And it may be that they will present their supplication before the Lord, and everyone will turn from his evil way, for great is the anger and the fury that the Lord has pronounced against this people." And Baruch the son of Neriah did according to all that Jeremiah the prophet commanded him, reading from the book the words of the Lord in the Lord's house. Now it came to pass in the fifth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, in the ninth month that they proclaimed a fast before the Lord to all the people in Jerusalem and to all the people who came from the cities of Judah to Jerusalem. Then Baruch read the book from the book, the words of Jeremiah in the house of the Lord in the chamber of Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, the, the scribe in the upper court at the entry of the new gate of the Lord's house in the hearing of all the people. When Micaiah, the son of Jemariah, the son of Shaphan, heard all the words of the Lord from the book, he then went down to the king's house into the scribe's chamber, and there all the princes were sitting. Elishamah, the scribe, Delaiah, the son of Shemaiah, Elnathan, the son of Akbor, Gemariah, the son of Shaphan, Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, and all the princes. And Micaiah declared to them all the words that he had heard when Baruch sound read the book in the hearing of the people. Therefore all the princes sent Jehudai, the son of Nethaniah, the son of Shalamiah, the son of Cushi, to Baruch, saying, Take in your hand the scroll from which you have read in the hearing of the people, and come. So Baruch, the son of Neriah, took the scroll in his hand and came to them. And they said to him, Sit down now and read in our hearing. So Baruch read it in their hearing. Now it happened when they had heard all the words that they looked in fear from one to another and said to Baruch, We will surely tell the king of all these words. And they asked Baruch, saying, Tell us now, how did you write all these words? At his instruction? So Baruch answered them, he proclaimed with his mouth all these words to me, and I wrote them with ink in the book. Then the princess said to Baruch, go and hide, you and Jeremiah, and let no one know where you are. 
And they went to the king into the court, but they stored the scroll in the chamber of Elishama, the scribe, and told all the words in the hearing of the king. So the king sent Jehudai to bring the scroll, and he took it from Elishama, the scribe's chamber, and Jehudai read it in the hearing of the king, and in the hearing of all the princes who stood beside the king. Now the king was sitting in the winter house in the ninth month with a fire burning on the hearth before him. And it happened when Jehudai had read three or four columns that the king cut it with the scribe's knife and cast it in the fire that was on the hearth until all the scroll was consumed in the fire that was on the hearth. Yet they were not afraid, nor did they tear their garments, the king, nor any of his servants who heard all these words. Nevertheless, Elnathan, Deliah, Gamariah implored the king not to burn the scroll, but he would not listen to them. And the king commanded Jeremiel, the king's son, Sariah, the son of Azareel, and Shalemiah, the son of Abdeel, to seize Baruch, the son, the scribe, and Jeremiah, the prophet, but the Lord hid them. Now after the king had burned the scroll with the words which Baruch had written at the instruction of Jeremiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Take yet another scroll and write on it all the former words that were in the first scroll which Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, has burned. And you shall say to Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Thus says the Lord, You have burned this scroll, saying, Why have you written in it that the king of Babylon will certainly come and destroy this land and cause man and beast to cease from here? Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning Jehoiakim, king of Judah, He shall have no one to sit on the throne of David, and his dead body shall be cast out to the heat of the day and the frost of the night. I will punish him, his family, and his servants for their iniquity, and I will bring on them, on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and on the men of Judah, all the doom that I have pronounced against them, but they did not heed. Then Jeremiah took another scroll and gave it to Baruch the, son of, Baruch the scribe, the son of Neriah, who wrote on it, at the instruction of Jeremiah, all the words of the book, which Jehoiakim, king of Judah, had burned in the fire. And besides, there were added to them many similar words. Once again this week, we are going to try to tackle two chapters of a book of the Bible, and that's always a challenge for me. Um, but I feel that they are thematically very strongly linked to one another. A uh, theme that we want to talk about this morning, obviously, um, as we look at these accounts. And as I shared last week, we come to a section of Jeremiah that uh, we struggle with how it's structured. Um, it is not chronological, not in the least. We will go from one king to another king from one account. One point we have Jeremiah in prison then he's not, and then we go back later on to, uh, in chapters yet to come where we're going to explain how he got into prison, even though we've already had many accounts of him already in prison. Uh, well, how did he get there is actually going to give to us much later. And this is disconcerting to us because we like stories that go from the beginning to the end. And, uh, but that wasn't how it was written. It was written thematically, and so those that want to just... Uh, think that this was shuffled somehow, that all these accounts were, were mixed up and uh, somewhere along the line and just kind of plopped down. I think uh, we need to consider that 
the part of God's work in preserving his word is not only the content, but the order. And uh, we do have some disagreement between this, uh, the Masoretic and the, and the Septuagint and a few others of the order of this book. Um, in fact, in the Septuagint, there's a radically different Jeremiah order of chapters. Um, they have shuffled it a little bit to uh, uh, make it a little more chronological, taking some portions out of the later put, book and putting it in the earlier book, particularly the judgment on the nations portion, um, because it's referenced in this passage that we have before us today. All that Jeremiah wrote, that he would have had to have written all of that before this account. But again, the insertion of this account could have been made purposefully as well to break that up. And so we're going to find some of that evident here, but we're also going to find some exciting declaration that is repeated over and over again. Hopefully you pick that up just in the reading of this first chapter. Repetitive things need to get your attention when you read the Bible. And there's a phrase here that is repeated over and over again uh, that's even questioned, is this how it happened, that tells us how God's word came to the to them and to us, and the mechanism by which it was um, produced and then uh, distributed. And so a very exciting chapter in that respect, um, but we, don't, we also want to pick up, uh, as we get into the chapter 37 as well, um, the disturbing part of this passage, and that is the overwhelming um, rejection of God's word among his own people. And that, of course, is, a, is the primary theme we're going to see here um, throughout this passage. Before we get into it, let's go, Lord, in prayer together. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you again for your word before us, your spirit within us. And we pray as we look into your word that you might give us wisdom, wisdom that is from above, uh, that is not our own, that is not structured upon the wisdom of men and its philosophies, but rather of yours, of your spirit. And so we pray that what is spoken is in accordance with your spirit, that how it is received might be in humility and, and surrender, and that you might find us of a different spirit than the original recipients of these messages. And Lord, that uh, we recognize that will be by your grace and mercy toward us as well. We recognize that you are just as disturbed by sin among your people in this day as you were in that day. And so Lord, we pray that we might be sensitive to it in our lives and in our corporate identity as a body of Christ, as your bride, that we might be careful to recognize it and to purge it from us and to uh, walk in righteousness and truth. We thank you for your help in that, as well as your help in, in this message. And we know that it is all to your honor, glory, and praise. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we come to uh, a portion of Scripture. We're not sure exactly what has incapacitated Jeremiah from being able to uh, go and declare the word. Some would contend he's in prison, but the indication is that he is not because the king doesn't know where he is. And so he is incapacitated somehow and unable to deliver the message personally. 
uh, whether that is a medical issue, whether it was, you know, an injury, whether he was, had other responsibilities, we really don't know. Um, but we know what the Bible tells us, and that is that he is confined. Uh, and that's how the word he describes for himself. I'm confined here. I, I, and whether that is inflicted by others or by his own limitations, he couldn't make his way to the temple to deliver the message from the word of the Lord. And, of course, God already knows of his confinement, that he is already incapable of doing this uh, physically. And so he tells him, you're going to have to write it down and give it to your scribe, and he will go and have him read it uh, in the hearing of all the people in the temple in a very specific place. And uh, so we have God giving him an instruction to start writing it down. We find now where the origin of this book really came from. And uh, which is unique, very much so, to many of the prophets that we're not really uh, given this uh, information of that God told him not only to speak it, but to write it down. Obviously, someone did, because we have those books before us throughout our canon of Scripture. Um, but here we have it specifically laid out for us how it came to be. God says, you're going to take a scroll, I want you to write this all down. And, uh, and so it can be delivered um, not by you, but by another, but yet it still has to come from your mouth. And it has to be dictated out. Um, and so we find that this is more than likely the, 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 not even the majority, but maybe even the consistent way that all of Scripture was written. Uh, we talk in the New Testament, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, uh, that it was spoken as holy men of God were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Not written, but spoken. That this was the, the Word of God primarily was breathed out. When we talk about inspiration, it is breathed. It is spoken. It is the, is the vocalized. And still to this day, it remains the most effective mechanism of transferring the truth of God to men. God calls you to go out and vocalize that truth to others. Can we write it down? Certainly. But we all recognize that there is a great distinction between reading a text of someone's speech and hearing it given. Isn't there? There is a great difference you can read a speech and it may or may not touch you because you do not hear the inflection. You do not hear um, how it is presented. You don't feel and sense the, the energy and the, the expression that is behind it and intended by the speaker. And so it is important to recognize that the scribe wasn't just writing down the words, but he was hearing it declared so that he could share that in addition to the text to share that facet with the hearers, the secondary hearers, he being the primary hearer of this message from Jeremiah's mouth itself. And so we find that there is, there is a, a necessary value there, that yes, here's the book, and we trust it, and we recognize that these are the words of God, but we also understand that it was given verbally. Um, the history that Moses writes down we are very comfortable understanding that as an oral history given down from, from generation to generation with such precision, such accuracy 
And then it comes to Moses. He is able to present that and be able to write it down to outlast any language. We have it in writing. But we recognize that the having it in writing is the second best, not the best way to receive God's word. It is best to hear it. And when we get in the New Testament, similarly, do, does Paul write very much of his own words? No. In fact, he states in one book particularly that I've taken up the pen myself at the end of this book, and you can see that my, the writing has changed. <laughs> well, how was the rest written? The same way Jeremiah was written. A man spoke the word of the Lord, and a scribe, in the New Testament called amanuensis, a secretary, basically, writes it down, word for word. And, and that is how the word of the Lord was given. It was breathed out, inspired. And again, the reference to the breath of God, that the Lord speaks, and now the vocal cords, the human vocal cords of the prophet uh, bring those forward in the hearing of men, and they are then recorded. And so here comes the Lord to Jeremiah, saying, this time um, I'm going to have it written down. And so I want uh, it written, all the words that I have spoken to you against Israel, against Judah, against all the nations, from the day I spoke to you, from the days of Josiah, even to this day. So this is a comprehensive writing of what he has preached. So he has to sit back, and God's going to bring it to his memory. He's going to verbalize it, and his scribe is going to be writing down every sermon going way back decades earlier that has been spoken. Because it's not just the most recent sermon about the most recent issue. He said, I want you to go back all the way to the days of Josiah, where your ministry started, where you were a really young man. What did I proclaim then? What did I proclaim to Israel who hadn't been carried off into captivity yet? Or had, you know, and in the midst of all that, what did you speak against Israel? What was the prophetic message that has already been fulfilled because Israel's already long gone? And what have I spoken against all the nations? I want you to rehearse all the fullness, and that's why in your Septuagint, the message against all the nations that's going to be at the end of your book of Jeremiah is in the uh, earlier, about 20-something, in the uh, Septuagint. All those chapters against the nations shows up earlier in the Septuagint. Um, because here we already know that they've already been spoken. God says, you've already really given out that message against all the nations. And I want you to write down all of those that I have consistently treated everyone the same. I have been faithful. I have uh, extended my mercy and grace to everybody. Um, in the days of Josiah, they responded, and I blessed them. They repented. Um, the nations, I have spoken against them. I spoke against Israel, and I'm speaking now against Judah. And every single one that I've spoken against either has experienced my judgment or will experience my judgment, including you, Judah, you are not unique. I have consistently 
shared my word with everyone. So when he talks about, I have risen up prophets and I have early and often, um, he wants to rehearse that even just through the ministry of Jeremiah. So why does God want to repeat? Remember, Jeremiah's preached all these messages. He's spoken the word of the Lord. Now he's going to record it and have it read again in the house of the Lord to this group of people. Why? Well, God is repetitive because he loves you. Because he has grace and he has mercy toward you. And he keeps confronting you with the same message over and over again not to hammer it in, not because he thinks you're stupid and don't get it the first time, not because he has nothing else worth saying, and certainly not because um, he forgot he told you. He keeps presenting to, to you as opportunity for you to respond on a deeper and more profound level um, than you have before. Maybe your response before was completely negative. And now he has worked in your life to such a degree the very same message can make profound effect. Whatever it is, for your particular situation, we know this. God has good intentions. He wants you to hear the same message over and over again, and that's how we sung, sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. Well, I get tired of hearing the same thing. The Bible, what does it say about the people? They want have itchy ears that want to hear new things all the time instead of the old things that are the right things that need to be repeated over and over again. And we have an insatiable appetite for the novel. Where's our appetite for the immovable? The truth that doesn't change. Why don't we have an appetite for that? Because maybe we don't have an appetite for what it demands of us. Look at the next verse here in Jeremiah 37 or 36, and it's going to stretch into 37 as well. In verse 3, It may be that the house of Judah will hear all the adversities which I purpose to bring upon them, that everyone may turn from his evil way, that I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. This is why. Why do we keep confronted with the same things over and over and over again? Is because we're still carrying the same sin weight along with us, and God wants to liberate us from it. He wants to bring us another opportunity and another opportunity and another opportunity to set things right with him. And that's not a bad thing. That is a loving act. I'm going to give you another chance to... Take the correct line of thought, the correct line of action, of speech, and repair and restore and build this relationship with me. And you don't need something novel. You don't need uh, more drama. You, don't, you just need to hear the same old message again. Because if your behavior hasn't changed, I don't need to change the message. I would love to bring you words of hope and encouragement and goodness and blessing 
And, and by the way, remember, God has done that through Jeremiah. It stretched into the distant future, well beyond their generation, but he did present it. But he said, I would love to focus on that, but I can't. Why? Because there's still a stubborn clinging in your heart and in your, in your behavior to sin, and it stands against you, and it condemns you, and I don't want you to be in this con- state of condemnation, and so just maybe every one of you will listen, respond, maybe this time you'll get it. How precious and important it is that you respond and correct yourself and get in this right relationship with me so I can forgive you and we can forego all of the horrible things that are waiting for you on the other side of my wrath. And so we find this message being reproclaimed by Jeremiah and Baruch is scribe writing it down and in the middle of verse 4 we have a very carefully constructed phrase that is translated in the New King James at the instruction of Jeremiah which really means that it came right out of Jeremiah's mouth. So it was verbally declared by Jeremiah and every word was written down as they came out. And now this, this scribe because of the confinement on Jeremiah Um, is sent to deliver this message and after he delivers the message some important hearers are going to respond properly and we're excited the fear of the Lord comes upon them so Baruch heads into the temple he sets up shop Um, this is all uh, precursored upon a declared time of fasting so God has already prepared the message for this special day that was decided upon by the leadership of, it, of Judah that, oh, you know, we need to have a day of fasting. And that sounds really good, doesn't it? It's kind of like our national day of prayer. That sounds like a really good idea. We should have a national day of prayer. Um, and uh, its origins are set back in the days of Lincoln, um, who called the nation to a day of repentance and prayer. He calls us not to just prayer, but to repentance was what Lincoln wanted. We need to repent as a nation. This is all God's judgment on us. Um, we've lost track of that. Now let's pray to whatever God and however way he seems right to you, not the one true and living God. But the king has set aside a day of prayer, a day of fasting. We think, well, this is a step in the right direction. And it is. The purpose of fasting is for spiritual reflection upon your relationship with God individually, as a family, and as a nation, as a tribe. And so here is a wonderful opportunity if people have have taken the time as an entire nation to say we need to be in fasting and focus our attention on what is wrong, what is going on here. And God has prepared Jeremiah with a message. He can't deliver it himself, and so here comes Baruch. It's the day has been set aside. Everyone is in this condition of considering their ways, you would think, the purpose of fasting uh, to be accomplished. And here comes Jeremiah's scribe. And he starts reading. And it touches the hearts of some of the people who are in the temple. Now, I want you to think about on the day of fasting, There will always be in a nation those who take it seriously and those who don't. 
and those that ignore it. Much like our National Day of Prayer. There are those that take it seriously and they are around flagpoles and they are taking time in, in the city uh, center there and trying to gather for prayer and, and uh, make it a real focal point. There are those that will do it privately and there are those that will just not even know it exists. And I'm pretty sure Judah is the same condition. But the ones who take it seriously would be where? They would be at the temple. And so here in the temple, these men who are taking this day of fasting very seriously here, and they're standing there at the new gate, and they're hearing the word of the Lord being spoken there and being read off by, by the man who heard it from the man who got it from God. And I'm certain that he would have added the inflection and the tone and the, and the intensity that Jeremiah gave it to him. And, he, and it's all of this that's been heard for several decades same message, but it touches their heart in this setting. And there it says specifically that they are full of fear. They said this word needs to be given to more people. You need to take this, and first they send a representative, you go over to the princess and you tell them, and so he's going to recount everything he heard. And they say, well, that's not good enough. We want to hear it read ourselves. And they bring it in to be read, the, the, the text. Remember, not the scribe. The scribe was hidden. Bring the text so we can read it out loud. They read it and they realize the king needs to hear this. Um, this is the answer to our fasting. This is God's response. And, and if we're concerned that we're messing something up well God has given this and repeated over and over throughout this whole passage is did you get this from the mouth of the prophet did it come from Jeremiah's mouth or did he write it down he says I got it right from his mouth I wrote down every word that came out of his mouth boy that makes it really serious now what comes out of your mouth huh? what does the Bible say about that be careful because every word God listens to that's kind of frightening. And so they asked the question, did this come out of his mouth? Did you really get this verbatim from him? And yes. He says, yes, I wrote down every word he said. It's got to go to the king. And it arrives at the king, and they begin to read the text. And they only get a little ways through it. We've read the account. They get a little ways through it, and the exact opposite response happens in the king's presence. Now remember, the king had set the day of fasting, but he wasn't in the temple fasting. In fact, he was at home, sitting by the fire. In the comfort of his place, on the day of fasting, and some godly men bring him this account to be read. And his response is the opposite of theirs. Their response was one of fearfulness. That's in verse 16. It says, Now it happened when they had heard all the words that they looked in fear from one to another and said to Baruch, 
we will surely tell the king of all these words. This has got to go to the highest level. And the question we have to ask is, why isn't the king in the temple on the day of fasting? Why isn't he there searching out the truth of God? Why is he at home sitting in front of a fire? And now we hear their response. It says in verse 24, they were not afraid. They did not tear their garments, not the king, nor any of his servants who heard these words. Same words. Two completely opposite responses. These men, serious about considering their ways and taking this this opportunity of of self-reflection and of fasting and of and of pouring out to Lord, what do you require of us? Hear the word of the Lord, and the, the, the fear of it strikes them in their heart, and the indication is that that fear did exactly the opposite. And these people not only didn't repent, and that's to tear your garments, to mourn over your own sin. These individuals did. They responded that way. They said, this has got to go national. It's not good enough just to go temple-wide. It's got to go nationwide. It has to take it to the highest level And it gets there, and these people, in the comfort of their room, before their roaring fire, have no fear of it. No contemplation that requires something of change in them. In fact, they are so disgusted at it, it is so offensive, that the king doesn't even want to hear it all, takes it out of the hand of the reader, and throws it, cuts it out of the hand of the reader, and throws it into the fire. Even as... These men of God are saying, what are you doing? Stop! These are our hope. This is what you were, I thought this was what this day of fasting was all about. But we, it wasn't all about that. And that is the problem. Today, as it was back then, with national days of prayer, is that it's really not about, we want to hear what the Lord has to say. It's we want to fulfill this religious act to fool God into thinking that we're interested in him so that he can't help but bless us. With no no intention of it changing our life. We're going to sit by the roaring fire in the comfort of our inner house and we are going to put our feet up and be warm and If someone comes to us with a challenge of our way of life, we are going to burn it without even it striking fear in our hearts. This was the situation under Jehoiakim. And he thought he could stop it. I'll just burn it now. It's over. Nobody's going to hear us again. And you radical people that are at the temple today um, on a cold winter's day, cold winter's day at the temple They're out there hearing the word of God, contemplating themselves, their relationship with God, the condition of their nation. And the princes realize the great danger that just has come. These men who have heard had told 
the scribe and Jeremiah to hide, and they hid well, and God, it says, went beyond that and hid them himself. Because God's going to preserve the messenger in this case because he's got more work for him. And in fact, he's got more work for this king. And so he says, you're going to sit down and write it all again. Now, have you ever tried to preach the same sermon twice? Now, I've had situations where I've been had opportunity to preach the same sermon. Um, and by the way, uh, in days of old, days that we think of spiritual highlights of our nation, uh, most sermons were given multiple times. Uh, that's why we have them in writing. Uh, sermons like Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God um, by Jonathan Edwards. Uh, he didn't preach that once. He preached that in church after church after church. Same exact sermon. And I've had a few opportunities where I've been in multiple churches and the only ones that heard the message over and over again were my family because they had to go with me to every church. And I always think about that for itinerant people um, like the Silcots that Caleb has to hear every, these messages every week. You know, and uh, and I, I felt for my kiddos and my wife, they have to hear the same message every week while I'm on furlough or on deputation or whatever because uh, I'm speaking in a different church and I have the same message I want to declare. And every one of them is slightly different. And that's communicated here that yes, God's going to bring it to his memory. He's going to repeat this. They're going to write it all down. But it's going to have what it had to begin with and a little bit more. Do you see it there? It says, at the end of verse 32, it says, and besides, there were added to them many similar words. God says, you're going to disregard and destroy that. I'm going to remake it. I'm going to remake it even more. And among the more has to be this declaration that since you burned the last one, your fate is set. You've sealed it. This is, you're going to be destroyed. And your whole household, all those people around you that didn't fear, that didn't respond, didn't repent, didn't mourn, didn't tear their clothing off, didn't rip their clothes to, to just recognize their own sin, that they are deserving of this, and it's the only way you're going to get out of it is to show that kind of remorse, that kind of sorrow over your sin. And so all this wicked is going to come upon them because they did not heed it. God says the doom is sure. And the words are written down and we have benefited by them for they are here before us. The king can't stop the truth when God has spoken it. Well, that was the time of Jehoiakim. And then we come to a later time with Zedekiah. And again, we have the same kind of circumstances with Zedekiah. New king, new princes, new family. I know he's an uncle, but he's got his own kiddos. And, and, and uh, we have another opportunity. Remember that Babylon has come in not just once, but three times Babylon comes to the walls of Jerusalem. And they've already been sacked twice. Now under Zedekiah, it's the last act. And uh, Zedekiah is there. We still have the same prophet. Same prophet is there. And so under Zedekiah, same situation now. And we have um, uh, 
the same condition that we ended up in the last chapter. Here it is in verse 2. Neither he nor his servants nor the people of land gave heed to the words of the Lord which he spoke by the prophet Jeremiah. The condition we ended with with the last king we have right here still in place in Zedekiah. It's still the same heart condition. And now we have seen that it's his family, his court, if you will, and all the people. They have stiffened themselves. And so, once again, they're confronted with an army approaching them. And once again, the king, just like the other king, we're going to have a day of fasting, says, well, we're going to have Jeremiah come in and pray for us. Have the preacher come pray for us. That'll solve the problem. We don't need to repent. We don't need to change. We don't need, it's not our problem. It's God's problem. So have God's man come and deal with it with God. And I still have people in this day coming and saying, well, if the preacher comes and prays, it'll take care of the problem. It's like, Pfft. no, it won't. Because my praying isn't the problem. The problem is your behavior. It's your attitude. It's your heart. But they don't see a need to do that. And so in verse 3, Zedekiah the king uh, <clears throat> sent for Jeremiah. He says, pray now to the Lord our God for us. We don't want to change. We don't want to heed the Bible. We don't really want to read it. We don't want to know it. We don't want to heed it. We just want you to pray for us so that everything is good for us. We can keep living the way we are and we'll credit you with praying for us and deliver us. And Jeremiah shows up. Haven't put him in prison yet, <laughs> tells him verse 4. And here comes the word of the Lord. Now remember, here comes Pharaoh's army. Um, and so the Chaldeans leave, and it seems like a reprieve. Seems like God has answered the prayer. It looks like that was the right course of action. And then here comes Jeremiah. It says, Thus says the Lord, I'm in verse 7, the God of Israel. This is what you're going to say to the king of Judah, who sent you to me to inquire of me. Behold, Pharaoh's army, which has come up to help you, will return to Egypt, to their own land. And the Chaldeans shall come back, fight against the city, and take it and burn it with fire. Thus says the Lord, do not deceive yourself, saying the Chaldeans will surely depart from us, for they will not depart. For though you had defeated the whole army of the Chaldeans who fight against you, and there remained only wounded men among them, they would rise up, every man his tent, and burn the city with fire. How more conclusive can you get? God says, if you go out and fight these Chaldeans and you wound every single one of them, and they're all walking around with arms missing and stab wounds and, and things like that, they got gashes all over their body, they've got all this blood loss, um, still you're going to lose the battle. I'll raise them up out of their tents, off of their deathbeds, and they will conquer you. That's how sure you can be of my judgment. There's nothing you can do to avoid it. Do you get the message? That's the message. There's nothing you can do to avoid it of your own strength. Not a thing. No matter how glorious you fight, no matter how wonderful the victory appears, no matter uh, any of that, no matter if you strike every Babylonian man down, I will raise them up to defeat you. End of story. There is nothing you can do 
in your capacities to prevent this. There's only one thing, and it's repent, and you refuse to do that. So you've called the man of God to come pray for you. It seems like it's worked. He's interceded to God, but while he's interceding to God, God says, okay, um, here's what you need to go tell them. Here's the actual message. The message isn't you have a reprieve. The message is they're coming back and they will not fail. What do you do with that kind of a message? Well, what do people do with it today? Oh, we'll deal with it when it comes. Hear that a lot. Oh, if it gets like that, then I'll know, then I'll deal with it. No, you won't. Well, if other people will be mad. You're supposed to pray for me. You're here. You're not a very good pastor. You're supposed to be helping me, not condemning me. You're not supposed to be pointing out my sin. Judge not, lest you be judged. See, you're not supposed to judge me. And yes, I've heard it all. And I've heard it all. And I heard all, I've been in the ministry enough that now it's just, it's what I expect to hear. Who are you to judge me? You're not a great, you're not a good, you're not, you don't love me. You're here pointing out my sin. See, nothing's changed. Here comes Zedekiah responding to Jeremiah, who gives him the word of the Lord. Remember what the point was, maybe people repent. Maybe they'll do the right response, and that is to be sorry for their sin and come to God on his terms. No, we're going to fight and fight and fight. And so, here comes the response. Verse 11 and following, in chapter 37 of Jeremiah. When the army of the Chaldeans left the siege of Jerusalem for fear of the Pharaoh's army, Jeremiah went out of Jerusalem, going to the land of Benjamin to claim his property there among the people. And when he was in the gate of Benjamin, a captain of the guard was there whose name was Arijah, the son of Shelemiah. The son, and by the way, that's a name we've heard before already from the previous generation. The son of Hananiah. And he seized Jeremiah, the prophet, saying, you are defecting to the Chaldeans. And Jeremiah says, False! I am not defecting the Chaldeans, but he did not listen to me. So Elijah seized Jeremiah and brought him to the princes. Different group of princes have no fear. They think they're off the hook because the Babylonian army has disappeared. They struck him, put him in prison in the house of Jonathan the scribe, for they had made that the prison when Jeremiah entered the dungeon in the cells, and Jeremiah remained there many days, and Zedekiah the king sent and took him out. The king asked him secretly in his house, said, is there any word from the Lord? And Jeremiah says, there is. Then he said, you shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. That's the word. You asked me to pray for you, I prayed. This is what God says. You're done. You're going to be destroyed. Zedekiah's response is not to tear his clothing. But to leave him in prison. And Jeremiah asks this question, verse 18, What offense have I committed against you, against your servants, against this people that you have put me in prison? Where now are your prophets who prophesied to you, saying the king of Babylon will not come against you or against this land? Therefore, please hear now, O Lord the king, Please let my petition be accepted before you and do not make me return to the house of Jonathan the scribe lest I die there. 
And Zedekiah the king doesn't release him, says that they should commit Jeremiah to the court of the prison, and that they should keep him daily bread, a piece of bread from the baker's street, until all the bread in the city was gone. Thus Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. And it's going to get worse. We're going to get into chapter 38, and he's going to be so disgusted with him preaching against that we're going to fall, we're going to fall, we're going to fall, we're going to fall, that the conclusion is, if we don't shut him up, there's no one in the city that's going to have the strength to fight. And so Zedekiah gives him over to the hands of his worst enemies who throw him in the miry pit where he almost dies. And this again is the response of a king giving lip service, recognizes the Lord, recognizes Jeremiah as a prophet, but look at how he functions. It's all in secret, and his public disposition is what? Silence him. Put him in prison. We'll feed him. I'll consult with him secretly, but we're not going to heed any of what he says. So what do we do? What do we do when we're confronted with that? Here's what I want to do. I'd like to say, well, you get what you deserve and be done with you. That's me. That's Kirk Wesslink. That's how I respond. In my flesh, that is how I feel. If they're going to reject it to this degree and they want to put all of the accusation that I'm not being the pastor they think I should be, um, well, I've given you the truth. You reject it. Good luck. It's on your own head. Well, I don't even tell them good luck. I said, well, it's on your own head. And essentially, we're just telling them to be damned in hell forever. And I would be content to do that. But the Spirit of God says something different. He says you keep bringing it to them. And you don't stop. As long as you have breath, we are called to deliver this message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the more they mistreat us, the more they reject that message, the more necessary it is that we offer it again and again. How many times has God confronted these nations with this message, not just from Jeremiah repeating it over and over again for 40 years, but all the other prophets as well. How many chances does God give them? Plenty. And the real question comes down for me is, how many chances should I be involved in that process? As many as God gives me until I have no breath to challenge them with the truth of God's word. How often should you be approaching your family members, your brethren, as many times as God gives you to confront them with the truth of God's word till they come to repentance? Maybe one of those is the last time necessary, either because judgment is on their head or because they will repent and we can praise God. Either way, God calls us to this kind of consistency to press the matter again and again. They burn it, write it again. They want to quiet you down. They want to slap you in prison. They want to slap you. You just take it 
Press on. You do not vary. You do not swerve away from that purpose and that message. You must press it forward over and over and over again. Jeremiah's condition isn't as bad as it's going to get. Next week we're going to see his condition that he's found him when they Jerusalem falls. And, and we're going to see the conclusion, really, of the, of the ministry of opportunity. But I want you to see Jeremiah's boldness to simply, he's falsely accused in one point, and thrown into prison, he's transferred to another prison, he still has the ear of the king, and instead of, of uh, varying the message at all, he says, the Lord, this is, the Lord isn't fickle. He's not going to change his mind the last second and make you an exception. It's just not going to happen. But over and over again, I encounter people who say, well, I think on the judgment day that God will give me credit for for what? For living the way you please and ignoring people like me who bring you the gospel, who bring you his truth? And I had it this week to confront a man in, in an interesting reason. Um, I'm out there at a work site and the Jehovah's Witnesses are going up and down the street. And the only one on the street are me and another construction guy next door. So he comes over to me at lunchtime and says, what do you think about this stuff? And I go, you really want to know? And I go through the whole thing of what the truth is and the gospel and how it distinguishes from these who deny the deity of Christ. And, and uh, it's all based upon your efforts and works. And, and uh, he says, well, I believe. I said, it doesn't matter what you believe. Unless you conform your belief to God's word, to the truth, your belief isn't any more valid than theirs. Because all you have is yourself behind your beliefs. So this defines me because it's not my beliefs that, that I'm trying to give you. It's God's word, the truth. What you believe isn't relevant because it's only you behind it. I think this. Based upon what? God hasn't revealed that to you. You're not speaking the words of God. I go to the foundation of the very voice of God and that is the, the premise of my life, of my hope, of my belief system. You think this based upon wishful ideas of what that always accommodate your continued living the way you're living and never have to change. So do I stop and say, well, he's done now, I've tried. No. I get another chance, Dennis is going to hear it all again. And again, and again. Why? Because God is lovingly gracious and patient. And there will come a time when he won't be able to hear it again. Either I won't be in his life to tell it to him again, or his life will be over and he'll stand before the one true and living God, and he'll hear the truth and go, oh, what was I thinking? That I could define truth in my own little brain instead of listening to the word of the Lord. And so we keep singing it over and over again 
wonderful words of life. We keep declaring it again and again and again. We keep going out there with our with our life preservers, throwing them out there, hoping someone will grab on and be drawn into shore. And even if they don't and they kick at it and laugh at it and say, that's stupid, we're going to keep tossing them out there because we know that that's the only deliverance that is available, that works. We can only share the truth and everything else is foolishness and worthless. And it doesn't matter what it costs us because our eternity is secure. And therefore, what they do to me in this body, in these few hours that we are alive on this earth, in comparison is very small. And so I will use this time, these short, short years To give out the truth, even if no one wants to hear it. But maybe there are some people serious enough in the right heart to respond with the fear of God in their lives to recognize, I need to repent. I need Christ. I need the truth and not just what other men think or what I've come up with to justify myself. I need a right walk with God. So we press on. Let's pray. Lord God, we do pray that we might be your ambassadors, your mouthpieces to speak your word to those around us. That some, and maybe everyone, would receive you as Savior and Lord but certainly that your love and patience, goodness, kindness, and mercy toward them might be evident that they heard your truth time and again, that they had their chances. Lord, this must be accomplished for your glory by your people. We pray that we might accept that role and even the trouble that can come with it, that we might, in glory, be counted among your faithful. And Lord, we pray that you might embolden us by your Spirit to speak the truth in season and out of season to all that we encounter. In Christ Jesus' name, amen.